0: Well, good morning. Uh, I guess it is official. I am old. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. I finally made it, and I am really, I'm really blessed by all of you who who braved the consequences of global warming that you're here. I really appreciate that. Um, but. Let me start this message and a series on the Sermon on the Mount with a pretty basic question: What is your goal in life? Okay, fair question, isn't it? If you if you look at the TV and other media, you know they tell us that our goal is or should be to have as much fun as we can, and when we get old, to enjoy a comfortable retirement. And planning ahead is a good thing, and having clean fun is good as well. But it's not always possible. And, frankly, in some cases, it's not always the best thing. Uh, We all, after we get our basic uh, necessities taken care of, we all make decisions about our time and resources and our priorities. But we need to be aware of something that Paul said. He wanted to warn us about the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So that's them. What about us? Those of the evangelical New Testament church who believe in Jesus Christ and claim to be dedicated to live our lives for God, Are our goals and plans really any different than those of the world today? What do we desire most out of life? What are we living for? This is the most significant question that a Christian, in fact, I think anybody, can face. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's where we're going to start today. At least in a general sense, the goal of each Christian is to order our lives in such a way that we will see God. Do our long-term goals and plans differ from the world? If, if we see God, we will then open up all the blessings, not only for this life, but for eternity that he has waiting for us. And the key Jesus tells us is a pure heart. And this is key because this is the most central and important of all the Beatitudes because you can't be poor in spirit without having a pure heart. You can't mourn for the things that displease God without a pure heart. You can't be meek. You can't hunger and thirst after righteousness. You can't be merciful. You can't even be a peacemaker and you are not prepared to withstand persecution for the name of Christ without a pure heart. The heart of the matter is really the matter of the heart for each and every issue of life. If you look there on your study sheet, you'll see the word pure is katharos, cleansed, spotless, free from filth and impurities. And from this word, we get our English cathartic, a purgative for the purpose of cleansing out, and catharsis, which is the process of purging the emotions or relieving of emotional tension. And an issue that we should deal with right up front is whether anybody can be completely pure in heart. Well, in the absolute sense, absolutely not. God tells us that All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Jeremiah, the prophet tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. So what's the purpose of this particular beatitude? This is not about perfectionism or self-righteousness or outward appearance. Rather, this verse describes genuine believers whose inner nature has been cleansed and delivered from the guilt of sin. The practical effect is that a believer becomes more and more sensitive to sin and quick to discern the symptoms of impurity. It's not that the pure in heart are never tempted. We all are. It's just that the pure in heart will recognize the temptation and depart. Will run from it. They will do so instinctively. Beyond that, the pure in heart will see themselves as ambassadors for Christ. And therefore, they'll have a compelling and growing desire to be led only in righteous paths, to avoid casting even a shadow upon the name of Christ. The word heart is cardia, from which we get the word cardiac. uh, Figuratively, these are the inward drives and, and motives, the center of one's personality one's core or core values, if you will. When we say that somebody has a brave heart or a kind heart or an evil heart, we're not saying he's doing this or that. We're saying that's his personality. That's his character. And we would expect certain responses and conduct from that person because of what we've seen. If we look at the world, though, it's clear that there is a problem with hearts. So how do we clean up hearts. Some have suggested that we use government, legislation, and laws. But have you ever heard somebody say, well, you just can't legislate morality. Is that true or false? Well, my opinion is the answer is yes. Okay? Because every single piece of legislation is somebody's idea about what's right or wrong, and hence morality. And so we always should be supportive of laws and and legislation that most approximates biblical values. But on the individual level, it's clear that law cannot make the heart good. We can't force people just by passing laws to be good. Clearly, while our Christian foundation of this nation has made our nation much more enjoyable to live in than most other nations, it has not prevented us from the evils and sin of darkened hearts. That's why the body of Christ is vital to our nation and, frankly, the whole world. Both Peter and Paul refer to the church as a structure made of living stones, okay? And if it's alive, that stone has a heart. And to the extent that the heart of these living stones is pure, the body, the structure will be pure. And that's, that's the standard that is set for not only our churches, but our communities, our cities, our state, and our nation, and frankly, the whole world, because really, at least up until recently, the whole world looked to the United States for its standards. Unfortunately, the example that we are now setting in the United States is, once again, one of greed and lust. And to to paraphrase the historian Alexis de Tocqueville, if America is ever to be good again to be great again, it must be good again. Jesus makes it clear that it is not enough simply to clean up our act on the outside. In Matthew 23, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Jesus did not come to earth to make us nicer and more attractive. He did not come just to make us outwardly compliant, but to change the hearts of sinners like you and me. Would we have a better and stronger culture if we had no sin like murder and adultery? Well, absolutely. But what was Jesus doing when He talked about those issues? If you read further on in, uh, in Matthew 5, you said, Have you not heard that it was said, You shall not murder? But I say to you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause is, is in danger of judgment. And then later, I think it's verse 27, he said, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. You see, the heart, what we are at our core, our hidden thoughts and our feelings, which only God knows, Those invisible matters, those invisible things in us are more important than what's on the outside. Man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart. And from the heart come all the issues of life. In Matthew 15, it says, "...the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart." And those defile the man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, theft, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. Jesus didn't come to simply rid us of bad habits. Rather, because we have dirty hearts that need to be purified. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? If we look at the Old Testament, the closest parallel we have comes in uh, Psalm 24, where it says, who shall attend ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? The answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Now, clean hands actually is a common law legal doctrine, which says you cannot come into court and accuse somebody of doing something when you're guilty of the very same thing. In other words, no hypocrisy. And we can see what David means here by pure heart in the phrases that follow it. A pure heart is a heart that is has nothing to do with falsehood. It does not swear deceitfully. Now in the handout, the next point is uh, love without wax. Sounds a little weird, but hang on. Hang on. A related virtue is sincerity. And in 1 Peter 1, we read, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls with a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Now, this word sincere comes from the Latin sine, meaning without, and cere, meaning wax, from which we get the word ceremony because there's always candles at ceremonies. Okay? And when you sign a letter sincerely, you are literally saying, without wax. Okay? Now, you got to think, where did that come from? Well, in the old days, when the potter finished his product and then heated it up to, to make it hard, there would sometimes be, be defects, in other words, cracks. And the dishonest potter instead of throwing it away and starting over, would fill the cracks with wax and perhaps paint it and present it as a good pot for use. And it looked great until somebody subjected the pot to some heat and the wax melts and the deception is therefore disclosed. So a good pot is one that is sincere, without wax. You get the thought. Uh, Insincerity or as deceit is when we will to do one thing, but we will that other people think we're doing something else. James addresses this aspect of impurity for, of some believers in uh, James 4:8: "Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your, your hearts, you double-minded. Notice how both David and James refer to clean hands and a pure heart as preparation for drawing near to God. Notice also how he describes the impure as double-minded. That is, men who will two things rather than just one. This impurity of double-mindedness is further explained in verse 4. Unfaithful creatures, literally adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So a double-minded man has his heart divided between God and the world. It's kind of like having an affair while you're married. Purity of heart, on the other hand, is to will one thing. Complete fidelity to God. Jesus Jesus explains purity of heart in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Not with part of your heart. Not with a double-minded or divided heart. That's impurity. A pure heart means no deception, no double-mindedness, no divided allegiance. Paul tells Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith in 1 Timothy 1. So the aim of a pure heart is to align itself with the truth of God And magnify the worth of God. If you want to be pure in heart, pursue God with utter single mindedness. What does it mean to see God? First, to see God means to be admitted to His presence. If you were in the Sunday school, we just studied how when Pharaoh got frustrated, he expressed his rage to Moses. He said, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself. Never see my face again. For in the day that you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you wish, I will not see your face again. And when a king says, you'll never see my face again, he means you will never be admitted into his presence. We as believers desire admission into God's presence in eternity. Second, seeing God means to behold his glory. In other words, to experience His holiness. In John 14, we read, After a little while, The world will no longer see me, but you see me. The world sees with physical eyes, but we as believers see with spiritual eyes. Seeing God is also intimate fellowship with Christ because the heart, the inward man, is at peace with Him. It's desiring and understanding His will. And that gives purpose to our lives. It's the ability to fit life into meaningful patterns. And finally, it's sensing His acceptance and comprehending what we all have experienced. Forgiveness. Unbelievers miss this reality of God. In 3 John 11, it says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good, the one who does good is of God, but the one who does evil has not seen God. The pure in heart are sure, they're confident of God, their conscious of his leading in their lives, even in the midst of pain and disappointment when others are despairing and rebelling in chaos and confusion. Finally, seeing God means being comforted by his grace. Again and again, the psalmists cry out, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious unto me and answer me. Hide not thy face from me. Our spiritual light, our sight in this life, comes to us through the Word of God and the work of God in providence. We see images and reflections of His glories. We hear echoes and reverberation of His of his voice in nature. However, there will come a day when his glory will no longer be inferred from lightning or mountains or roaring seas or stars. Instead, instead, you and I will someday stare the Lord God in his face. We see and experience God now with the direct experience of his glory and we will be helped and comforted by his grace in eternity question, are we to strive to see God? Well, the answer might surprise you. It says in Hebrews 12, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So there's a real purity and a real holiness which fits us to see God, which we are to seek after. On the other hand, Solomon says, who Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? Is anybody truly pure? We've already answered that. But Jesus' answer is simple. He resolves this quandary when he says, With men it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, God creates a purity in us and for us so that we may pursue purity. By His grace, we are to seek that gift by praying with David, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. We must look to Christ who gave Himself for us to purify Himself a people. The response of our hearts to God's act of creation and Christ's act of sacrifice is single-minded faith in Christ as Lord and Savior When the question of circumcision of the Gentiles arose in Acts uh, chapter 15, Peter responded, God made no distinction between us, the Jewish believers, and them, the Gentiles, but he purified their hearts by faith. God is the one who purifies the heart, but the instrument with, with which he cleanses is our faith. Therefore, trust in the Lord with all your heart, Will this one thing, pursue this, you will see God. Practically speaking, what does it mean to will to be impure? Because if we don't will to be pure, we will to be impure. Well, there is beyond debate that the impurities that I allow into my body can cause, if not disease, at least debilitation. Some sort of problem with my body. Do you and I see our bodies as temples? Do we consider everything that comes in? Not just the food. Is it our goal to live our lives to serve God enthusiastically? Even impure sounds and images corrupt the mind and ruin lives. Pornography is one of the largest industries in the world. Why? Because skin sells. Do you, followers of the pure Christ, allow pictures or even sounds from any media to take your mind places that it should not go? Are you being faithful and true to your life partner in your heart? Even young people, a life partner that you have not even yet met every day of your lives. Now these impurities are are rather obvious, but there's other subtleties of life. Deception, bitterness, anger, envy, greed. Pride, of course. These are all conditions of the heart that take us away from the only source of true and infinite love that we have. We all need to make an honest assessment of the condition of our hearts. If you and I truly want to see God, we will seriously seek to purify our hearts. None of us really knows how much time we have left here. Perhaps that's reason enough to become more serious about our relationship with God, to purify our hearts, that we might see him more now and forever. Those who are pure in heart desire to be at peace with God. And if that's you, you will not rest as long as those around you are not at peace. Why? Because your peace with God, through Jesus, is an established fact. Romans 5. Because it is your goal and you attempt to live at peace with all men. Romans 12. Because you pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Romans 14. We're now moving on to blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. The principle of biblical peacemaking are vital for any conflict between large companies, between squabbling siblings and everything in between. Anytime someone mentions peace, however, the skeptics come out of the walls, and understandably so, because we have never experienced lasting world peace. Never. Uh, Steve Ioff is teaching a history class. Several weeks ago, we took a busload of parents and kids to the World War I Museum in Kansas City. Fascinating. And we saw the utter misery of trench warfare that hundreds of thousands of people went through. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to go to the Eisenhower Museum and see the, the, the horrors of World War II. And in that war, in the, the European theater, pretty much that whole continent was devastated by that war. And in the Pacific, it was an island-to-island, bloody hand-to-hand type of a war. And they were faced with the prospect of how to end the war. They were advancing on Japan, and and so one of the options was to invade Japan, which would obviously become a house-to-house combat type of a situation, probably destroy the nation of Japan, and result in countless loss of American and Japanese lives. President Harry Truman instead decided on another course, he decided to first warn Japan and then end the war decisively by dropping the atomic bomb on both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The Korean conflict and Vietnam followed and, and added untold misery. And war today is very, very different because we fight against an enemy that's not identified by a uniform or even by a country. Instead, they are religious terrorists intent not only on destroying or killing all Jews and Christians, but even other sects of their own faith. You cannot tell the good guys from the bad anymore. It's very, very difficult these days to know what's going on. Going back to Vietnam in the 60s and 70s, there arose a movement called the Peace Movement. Okay? And we used to call those folks uh, peaceniks or whatever, But the difference between a peacenik and a peacemaker is that the former simply carries a sign in a protest, and the latter actually knows the prince of peace. This more important peace, without which we cannot hope for a larger peace, is the kind that only Christians can know. That is, peace with God. Followers of Christ have, one, the ability to be filled with joy and peace. We also have the duty to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And finally, we have the duty to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. As we mentioned in the previous Beatitude, purity is a prerequisite James 3 tells us, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, we cannot have a naive view of peace. We cannot just say, Peace, man and expect to have any real peace. There will always be misunderstandings, sin, and conflict. We also have to balance peace with other biblical principles. In Ephesians 4, Paul exhorts us all to tell the truth in love. Then in verse 25, he admonishes laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor for we are members of one another clearly clearly excuse me truth is vital to our our functioning as a society even unbelievers understand that most of them but that raises a tough question if you as a believer tell the truth and that results in conflict Is it possible that you are not a peacemaker? Well, sure it could be if you don't tell the truth in love. My wife and kids and those in leadership uh, of this church know that this is an area with which I personally struggle. Whether or not I'm right If I express myself with a harsh spirit, I really don't have much expectation of peace. But assuming a humble and godly spirit, the reaction of another to truth is beyond our responsibility. Paul said, if possible, so much as it depends on you, Be at peace with all men, Romans 12. He therefore admits that there will be times that we stand for truth in love, but it will be impossible to achieve peace. As an example, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, in addressing the problems with the believers, he said, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, he would not have said that if the genuine Christians were supposed to rather compromise the truth in order to maintain peace. And it's precisely because some in the Corinthian church were genuine. They spoke the truth that some of the divisions existed. Then in Luke 12, Jesus says, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? Isn't that what we say at Christmas? Jesus says, I tell you, no, but rather division. Christ made it clear that in a very real sense, he would not bring bring peace, but division. The truth will often divide. We see this more and more as our government and the culture in general is more and more intolerant of the name of Christ. Jesus went further in in Matthew 10. He said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. Now I guarantee you, Jesus is not anti-family. But, He is simply making a statement about reality. He says, you must love peace and work for peace, but you must never abandon your allegiance to me and my word, no matter how much animosity it brings down upon your head. So you are not guilty. You're not in the wrong. If your life of obedience and your message of love with truth, elicit hostility from some. Now, moving on to another issue. Does it really say sons of God? Doesn't that infer that you're inferior as a daughter of God? Well, uh, take a deep breath. Okay? Some versions, even the King James, uses the phrase here, children of God, which is a phrase that, to convey God's affection, like what we receive at new birth. In John 1, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. However, that's not the term used in Matthew 5, 9. The word here really is sons. And it is used without an article, an A or a V, to designate character, quality. Therefore, peacemakers have the character, standing rights, and privileges of sons of God. So, is the Bible sexist? Well, this may be politically incorrect today, but in those days, being a son was a big deal. And I think it apparently is to God even now. How so? Well, sons perpetuate the heritage of the family. And hence, the title holds a special place in the family of God, particularly as it rates to the high calling of peacemaking. As the leaders of this church have studied the subject of biblical eldership, two things have become clear. Women are of equal value in God's eyes. I thought, I was tempted for a moment to have a fill in the blank there, but then I thought these things get dropped and this is been and I didn't, I don't want to take that risk. Equal value, ladies. Uh, Galatians 3, 28, there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. However, men and women are different And they have different but complementary roles. And we we don't have time now. We hope to cover this in much more detail this coming summer. But putting roles aside, there is nothing that limits the title, Sons of God, to males when it comes to bringing peace. In fact, women are often much better at it than we are. Nonetheless, the term or phrase, Sons of God, is there for a reason. To put an end to the battle of the sexes here, Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ we are all sons of God through faith. And that should settle the issue. In Matthew 5.9, Jesus says that people who have become sons of God have the character of their heavenly Father. There are several references to, uh, in Scripture to the Heavenly Father as a God of peace, and those are on your handout. But most importantly, we know that God is a peacemaker. Second Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So he made peace by the blood of the cross. Even though by nature we are moral criminals against God because we have committed high treason and we are worthy of death by hanging, nevertheless... God took our necks out and put the neck of Christ into the noose in our place and pardons any who will lay down their stubborn independence and admit, I know I am a sinner and I need Christ in my life. The whole history of redemption, climaxing in the death and resurrection of Jesus is God's strategy to bring about a just and lasting peace. Therefore, God's sons are that way as well. They have the character of their father. What he loves, they love. What he pursues, they pursue. You can know his sons by whether they are willing to make sacrifices the way that he sacrificed for us and our peace. By God's grace, we, you and I, We criminals are redeemed and set free from not only our sin, but our sentence. We're brought from rebellion to faith and made into sons of God. We're given a new nature, the image of our Father. If He is a peacemaker, then His children who have His nature are peacemakers as well. Put it another way, Paul says in Galatians 4, Since we are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, as he says in Romans 8, all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Being led by the Spirit of God always includes bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. Our salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. But Jesus calls each of us to be peacemakers. Therein lies the great seriousness with which we must deal with these beatitudes and seek the grace of God in our lives. The promise of sonship in this beatitude points us to a little later in the same chapter in verses 43 through 45. And there Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute, persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven in in verse nine he said that peacemakers will be called the sons of god in verse 45 he said we must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us if we would be sons of god so it appears that the character of god's sons involves all the acts of love we try to overcome the enmity between other people and ourselves so what steps do we take well, the first thing he mentions is pray. We should pray for our enemies and those that persecute us. Then in verse 47, he gives the other specific example of peacemaking love. If you salute or greet your only your brothers, what do you more than others? In other words, if you've got a conflict with somebody, and then you pass by that person and either ignore them, or you give a cool hello, or maybe even you cross over to the other side of the street or the hallway, aren't you just really nursing a grudge? Don't feed the animosity by ignoring and avoiding somebody with whom you have conflict. That's our, that's our natural bent. That's what we want to do. But that's not the demonstration of the spirit of a peacemaking God who sacrificed his son to reconcile us to himself and to each other. Peacemaking tries to build bridges with other people. It hates animosity. It seeks reconciliation. It desires harmony. So the peacemaker uses the only courtesy that an enemy might tolerate, a greeting. The peacemaker looks the enemy in the eyes and says, Good morning, Joe. With an attitude of love. And peace desires for his heart. Not a phony gloss of politeness to cover our bitterness. So we pray and we take whatever steps we can to make peace. Beginning with something as simple as a greeting. The peacemaker looks... Always to that goal of seeking peace. Romans 12 is very important at this point. Again, it says, if possible, so much as it depends upon you, seek peace. If there's going to be conflict, do not allow it to be on your head, to be your responsibility or you are the cause of that conflict. Some commentators have emphatically stated that uh, this beatitude about peacemaking only refers to making peace between people. And I understand clearly that the work of of Christ on the cross pays the price for our sin. And that we should take no credit when we maybe are involved in leading somebody to Christ. But I cannot conclude from that that... My role as a tool in making peace between God and man is not an application of this verse. In fact, my opinion is I think it might be the primary application here. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us, "...now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation." Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he was committed to the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in Colossians 1, it says, "...for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven." Therefore, mature believers help the lost to understand and accept Christ's reconciliation, and weaker brothers or sisters to walk in the light of God's ways." These people, these peacemakers, are serving in the highest sense. Perhaps in foreign lands like Spain or Haiti. Perhaps it's your job. Perhaps with your neighbors or with your friends. That is what we're called to do. This peace is bought with the sacrifice of a spotless lamb who knew no sin, but he loved us enough to suffer and die as payment for our sin. Now, we don't have time to go over the role of forgiveness and peace, but we'll, we'll cover that when we, when we study the, the Lord's Prayer, uh, Lord willing. But it goes without saying that we are to love one another, and that requires forgiveness to bring about peace. To wrap things up here, I know that even in this rather small body, there are distractions. It might be a fussy baby it might be thinking about, what am I going to do for lunch? Well, you're going to do potluck. That's what you're going to do. Or it might be, you know, some important meeting this coming up this next week. But I would ask that all right now, please bow your heads, close your eyes, and try to focus on the spirit of what is conveyed in the following passage and how it might apply in your life and in mine. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it was because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should forgive them. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed, you were called in one body. Oh Lord God. That we would learn. To purify our hearts. To become peacemakers. To become sons of God. Consistently. Every single day. Lord. Please remove the impurities. Remove the shackles from our eyes. That prevent us. From seeking peace. Peace. Lord God, we give you all the the glory and the praise and desire that you continue to work in and through each one of us. Thank you for the privilege of being called, every single one of us, sons of God. Amen.